When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me, Alina, with you, but I also have someone new, someone who I haven't podcasted with yet, but I'm really excited to do so. I've got Beth with me. Beth, do us a favour, tell us who we've got on. Yes, so today we um, are delighted to have Jo Mungovan with us. Jo is a local historian from Leicester, and she has researched and written about John Merrick, um, known to history as the Elephant Man. But today she is here to talk to us about the interestingly named Peppermint Billy and her book Peppermint Billy and the Tollgate Murders. Hi. <laughs> Hi Jo, I'm so excited because, do you know what, I'm not, I'm not very good at this time period. Let's be honest, I'm not very good unless it's 20th century, but... I'm excited because we get to talk about murder. Yeah. <laughs> so let's kick off with the first question because I know our listeners are dying to hear about this. So what do we know about William Brown's early life? Okay, well, William was born in the little village of Sculford in Leicestershire near Melton Mowbray, which is known for its pork pies and Stilton cheese. Born in 1819. <laughs> nice pork pies and nice Stilton cheese. And the little village, it came from a very notorious family, one of nine children, four of them already had died. And the family were literally, they were that notorious in the village of Sculford. They were actually removed from the village with the house being pulled down around their heads. So that was basically, gives you an idea of what the actual Brown family were like. And they were actually kicked out of Sculford when William must have been about 18. So I wanted to throw something in there. I was like, I could just imagine them being like the local, uh, can I use the word chav? I would use the word chav. <laughs> the local yobs, that's a better word. Yeah. The local oh, yeah. yob family, they're on the estate yeah. causing so much chaos and so many problems. His dad was not a saint. He had already, I think he'd broken into a, a, a schoolmaster's house and abused his wife and almost murdered her. He was also a thief. And when leather, which had been stolen from the local cobbler, was found in his house, he actually blamed his own sons that it was them rather than he actually did it. So that's the sort of father he was. And he actually taught his kids how to get out of um, the courts and how to lie to the police and how to avoid detection. So he wasn't the nicest of fathers. And I think he just passed that down to his kids. That's the Browns. <laughs> So following um, William Brown's conviction, um, which I guess we need a bit of detail on that as well, um, he was sent to um, await transportation to Australia. So could you tell us, Joe, a bit more about this time in his life? Yeah, well, this was his third conviction. 
As far as we know, he had three. He probably had many more below his belt, which I can imagine he did. I mean, he even admitted to killing a duck and eating it. So he had quite a few other convictions. But his first conviction was stealing a little book called The Child's Magazine from a little boy. His second conviction was stealing a watch and pawning it. And his third conviction, which was the one that sent him to Van Diemen's land, was stealing silver spoons from his employer. And he said that his, they were his mother's spoons, but why he sold them? They were, they were his employers because they're embossed with his employer's coat of arms. So because that was his third, third theft conviction, he was um, transported to Van Diemen's land, which is where they transported all the convicts because they couldn't go to America anymore. So, and the penal system in Australia, mainland had broken down. So they decided to send them all to Van Diemen's land instead. So that is where he went and spent the next, well, it was 10 years transportation service. So he went there. Um, and then the ship that he went on was the Gilmore. But before going to Van Diemen's land, they were actually kept in hulks down on the River Thames, which were like prison ships. And they were kept there until their transport ship came came to collect them. Talk us through what life was like on these hulks, because I can't imagine that things would be bright and airy and nice and fun. No, you've got to imagine a really old 18th century decommissioned warship, great big wooden floating prison, basically. And they were locked in their cell. They were locked downstairs at night. During the day, they were sent to the riverbanks to clear the riverbanks to to make it easier for ships. It wasn't and they were chain ganged and it was very public as well. So people could actually watch them. Obviously, as a reminder to say this is what will happen to you. If you cause problems, you'll get on a hawk and you'll end up in these chain gangs. They were given minimal amount of bread to live on. So the nutrition wasn't there for this great, big, difficult job. They had a pint of beer and some water. But of course, the water was taken from the Thames. So you can imagine how dirty and disgusting and filthy it was. And cholera, typhus, diphtheria, literally just was rife throughout these hawks. They had very small hammocks to sleep on. So basically, you've got your hammock. And I'd probably say a centimetre next to you would be another hammock mm. with another bloke. And it was all, that's what their dormitories were like. There was no privacy whatsoever. And of course, like normal town prisons, you were given charitable food because they could go in. These hawks were actually run by private contractors. Although they were overseen by the Justice of Peace, these private contractors literally were the prison, prison guards. You were not allowed any charitable organisation. It basically was a prison within a prison within a prison and chain gangs and that is what it was like in there Mm. and so um with William do we know um how many other men may have been on the hogs at the same time as him I mean obviously the way you were describing about the the unsanitary conditions and the hammocks it sounds like they really did have quite a lot of convicts squeezed in on you were looking at probably about 250 to 500 men on these prison hawks it wasn't just one prison hawk there was quite a few there was prison hawks in Woolwich, Sheerness Portland, Deptford. So it wasn't just one hawk. There was plenty of hawks. There was hawks for young children, hawks for women, and of course, hawks for adult mm. men. So you, you are looking at about 300 to 500 prisoners on board these ships at probably one time. Talk us through this transportation because we've heard stories on this podcast before where even if you're not a criminal, being transported far out, the conditions were still horrific. I'm assuming they were just... 10 times worse with the criminals being transported. Well, on the ships or actually in Van Diemen's land? On the ships to Van Diemen's land. 
Oh, yeah, the ships were. I mean, on William's ship, two men were swept overboard. I can recall three actually died on the journey from rheumatism and consumption, which obviously is TB. They did have, although you've got the captain of the ship, you did have the medical surgeon who was really in charge of the convicts. Um, and they wrote medical reports. Basically, you were in, in the decks at night. During the day, if the weather was okay, you were taken back up on the deck so it was cleaned and you were given air. I mean, at the end of the day, you weren't shackled on these ships because there's nowhere to go. You know, where are you going to run to? So you might as well not have shackles on. It's going to end up in the Southern Ocean. So basically, it was just a transportation ship. The accommodation was pretty dire. During the day, they were upstairs obviously until they turned into, I think it was the Southern Ocean, which is pretty notorious. Then for the next two, three weeks, they were all kept in and locked down. And the food, they had to fill up with food. But when they left Sheerness, they filled up at Cape Verde. And then from Cape Verde, they had to go all the way to Van Diemen's Land. And they ran out of um, citric acid, which was used for to prevent rickets. They ran out of medicines. So things, as the nearer and nearer they got to Van Diemen's Land, got a hell of a lot worse and say two of them were actually washed overboard and about four died that sounds like an incredibly um dire situation for those on board the ships um and remind us so with um william his conviction this time so this was for stealing from his employer was that right mm-hmm. so for stealing for his employer then he encountered this whole long voyage to to australia well, it was his third offence, well, third known conviction. Yes. So, of course, his first conviction, he was put in the House of Correction, given a private whipping and hard labour for a month. Obviously, that didn't work because he then stole some spoons. Not spoons, he stole a watch. When he had stolen the watch, he was put into Leicester County Jail for a year. Obviously, that didn't work because he sold silver spoons. So what do you do with him? So transport him to the Connollys. That's what they did. Ask a really stupid question. I don't know how many of my questions are going to be that stupid, but I'm assuming you could probably do less than him and end up getting transported to the colonies at this period. I mean, what kind of crimes would you end up being sent away for? Transportation was usually theft. There were some, obviously, there were rapists, murderers, child molesters. They could all be sent to the colonies as well because no, no judge really wanted to do capital punishment. So instead of committing someone to for capital punishment and execution, they would have been sent over. So the vast majority were thieves, but you did get your murderers, you did get your child molesters, you did get your rapists. You also got people that, that were charged with bestiality, crimes against God, obviously all those sort of things. So the, literally the, the, the worst people you can imagine were all transported to this little island colony of Van Diemen's Land. But then you could think about it, you could actually be hanged for horse theft. So the whole system was sort of really strange. You you were transported for murder, but if you stole a horse, you could be hanged. So the whole system was just completely in disarray. And you wonder how that experience was for for some of the men like William, where, um, you know, there was such that spectrum of, of different crimes for those on board. So he had stolen from his employer. And then, you know, he's on this ship with, with as you said, like rapists and murderers. And yeah. this is this hotbed of, you know, in so many different people on those ships. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, he was only what's he, you know, 1843. He was 24. Four, I think when he got transported, his first offence, he was 18. He had grown up with quite a hard sort of family. But the thing with William, he was actually um, diagnosed and known as weak-minded and an imbecile. 
that's the words that are actually used to describe him. So how his personality was on these ships, whether he kept himself to himself or whether he did cause problems, I don't know. There's nothing recorded that he caused problems on the ship. And I think his behaviour in the Welford Road prison, the county jail, was okay. According to his records, he, he did seem to just be quite quiet. He, okay, he was a thief and he was a convict, but there was no sort of viciousness or anything manic about his behaviour. So I do think he probably kept quiet, but it was just that he was described as weak-minded and an imbecile and deceitful. So, you, you know, trying to get a picture of what he was like. But I, don't know, I think he probably just would have kept himself to himself. Do we know what his experiences are like when Van Diemen's land? Well, when they get there, they get put into um, what they call probation stations, which are there to basically the convicts are there to build roads, build houses, basically make a, make a very successful country. That is what they're there for. So they go around different probation stations doing different jobs. William had, I think, four offences. One is in his probation stations and he was sent into solitary confinement. He attacked a fellow prisoner. Uh, he stole potatoes. He stole matches. He absconded, but he was caught. So obviously, you know, where'd you go? You know, in this really strange, horrible land unless you want to become a bush ranger. So he did actually have about four offences where he was put into solitary um, and where he was punished. But the main thing about William's transportation sentence was it was 10 years, but seven of those years, he actually spent them in a lunatic asylum. He was actually diagnosed with having mania, which is a great big umbrella type diagnosis. You know, it could mean anything. But he spent seven years in the New Norfolk Lunatic Asylum before he was actually released, which is pretty grim. With um, with the asylum um, experience, it'd be interesting if you could talk us through typical conditions. Um, and I'm also wondering where you described in people's reports that he was described as, quote, weak-minded. I mean, yeah. is there any indication um, that this is to do with his class background? So obviously often men who were diagnosed with, you know, with differently in terms of um, particular conditions. And there was this whole theory about around degeneracy, you know, that kind kind of stereotypes. So is there anything like that you could tell us about? Yeah. Well, when he was first put on the prison ships, it was actually described as weak-minded. So for some reason, he doesn't seem to have the full mental capabilities. What what happened to him in the asylum, mostly diagnosed with mania, there, his notes aren't very clear. They're very, very sketchy. It sort of, His notes say, you know, say the same, no change. But when I was studying his notes compared to somebody else's they're very similar now the other prisoner's notes are very similar and he was actually being given electric shock therapy which back then was very very early in its infancy and this was only found out in the 1930s when the 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 medical officer of the asylum in the 1930s went up to the attic rooms of this old asylum and found this machine with notes about people that receive an electric shock therapy back in the 1850s when William was there. Although it doesn't say he was getting it, his notes were very similar to somebody else. We do know that he had some jobs in the asylum. So, you know, I don't know, I think this is this description of weak-minded and imbecile, I don't think is correct. I think he was very intelligent, to be honest. A bit like kids with, I don't know, ADHD or dyslexia, they're incredibly intelligent, but didn't fit into the norm. That is the way I look at him. But he worked in the cows. He worked in the, worked with cows. He worked with the stables. He became a private servant to one of the wardens. 
So he did seem to have something about him. But what treatments he had, I don't know. But some of the treatments they were being given at that time, one of them is really, really grim. And it's called a stint. And it's, um, I don't know why I'm using my hands because nobody can actually see me apart from YouTube doing this. But it's like a, a flap that's put into the back of your neck and a very fine thread of silk or something is threaded down through your neck. Then every day it's manipulated. So it brings out all sort of gunge and gross stuff. And that's supposed to be the illness coming out of your body. So that is one of the treatments. And that's done every day. So, of course, all this gunge and whatever that's coming out, that's basically clearing out your humours, I think they were called. Keep your chakras in line. That's what they looked at. Of course, then there was the shock therapy using batteries or electric machines. Um, there was also the purging where they'd give you a mixture of mercury and other poisons. So basically you were vomiting and you had the complete diarrhea and all that was getting rid of the badness inside you. and It was coming out. So that was another treatment that they had. And that's all what I've got from the books about this asylum, because I don't know exactly what William was treated for because his notes are so sketchy, <laughs> just a little pain in the pain in the bum. But a real weird thing is William was in the asylum. When you're in Van Diemen's land, you work towards what they call a ticket of leave. So if your conduct is really good, you get a ticket of leave and then you go and work for a free settler. You're given a placement. Now, of course, William couldn't get this because he was in an asylum. Now, in 1854, 1853, William absconded from the asylum for about the fourth time, but wasn't brought back. This is about the time where his sentence ended. So he was due for a certificate of freedom. So he absconded from the asylum. Six days later, he turns up and gets his certificate of freedom. But the really weird thing is he is then placed with a free settler that you're only given if you've got a ticket of leave. But his, this gets all a bit complicated. His ticket of leave was then backdated to the September before he absconded because it was a yearly sort of ticket of leave they got, which is really weird because he was in the asylum then, because I've seen his records. But for some reason, they backdated his his work, which is really, really strange. And that is what I, this is when the strange things about William start to come out. There's all really weird stuff that's surrounding him. It is, it's really difficult to explain, but it's just there's something about William and something about the medical examiner and that asylum that just don't fit right if it's really difficult to explain i mean i've got a question to add to this i mean would it could any of this be fraudulent is could fraud be rife at this time here that's what we think i mean obviously you know the government's supposed to look all prim and proper but i've tried to explain it better in my book that there was something going on between the medical examiner and the governor this should not have happened. William should never have got a ticket of leave because he was in an asylum. Really shouldn't have got a certificate of freedom, but especially after absconding from the asylum. So we, the way I've sort of described it in the book is there was something, some type of fraud going on that maybe William was supposed to leave the asylum, but never did. So they had to backdate his ticket of leave to make it look as though they were going through the right procedures. I don't know. It was, it's very, very, very strange, really weird. So that is just, and the the other really weird thing is, is that the medical examiner that obviously released him from the asylum 
was in England at the time of William's execution. He was he'd been to um, to the Crimean War, and so he was on leave in England. They asked, they tried to get an affidavit about William's health because obviously he was he was insane. He was actually certified insane. So why do you let someone out that's certified insane? So they asked for an affidavit from this Dr. Mayer, but it was refused. So William was executed, and then this Dr. Mayer became the first medical examiner of Broadmoor. So it's a really strange web that there seems to be something that was going on between this medical examiner and William and his time in the asylum. I just don't know what it is. It does sound really complicated, I know, but it is really, really strange because the things that happened to William in this asylum and how he got released should never have happened, but they did. And then the medical examiner refused to send an affidavit in to say that William was insane. I don't know. <laughs> in a sudden flash, it all When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. It's very strange. So as you say, there's yeah, such an air of mystery around elements of, of William Brown's story. It is, it's, and it's just so hard to actually describe the actual story because it is, it is it, and even when you get to the murder... It is a huge mystery. There is something not quite right. And I'm still trying to get to the bottom of it. I still can't, but I'm getting there. And to take to take it back to William's family, with him being in Australia as a convict, in the asylum, I mean, we may not know too much about their lives, but you can imagine having the loss of, of a contributor to the family income. Obviously, he had been employed. Is there anything we can kind of speculate about how things may have been for them while he was away? Oh, they just got on with it. The, the family, in 1843, the family were kicked out of Scalford. His dad and his younger youngest brother, who was only 12, ended up in the Melton Mowbray Union Workhouse. His sister, Elizabeth, she got married in 1843 to a bricklayer from a village called Markfield. So she was happy. She has actually got descendants. I've traced their family. So she was happy. She ended up moving to Nottingham and then up to Yorkshire. His two other brothers, Robert and James, they, in 1847, they were then transported to New South Wales 
for horse theft. Oh, uh, and that's the um the the theft you said earlier that could actually warrant even more oh, severe yeah. sentences oh, yeah, than yeah. that. For horse theft, but you now they were sent to New South Wales, both of them, for horse theft. James died of typhoid about four years after arriving in um, New South Wales, but his brother lived till about nineteen. 1905 I think and he lived in Sydney so but I don't think William would have known they were there because you know you've got to think of if you look at it this way if you're in London your brother could be up in John O'Groats that's how vast Australia is so he probably wouldn't have known but after coming out of after his brother and younger brother came out of the workhouse they moved to Leicester and became they were shoemakers and had a store on Leicester Market and they lived on Bedford Street, which is just off, if anybody knows Leicester is listening to this, it's just off Belgrave Gate. So they lived there, a really notorious street full of ale houses and um, boarding houses and all sorts of things. Quite a no- notorious street. Still there now, but not as big. So they ended up there. And that's how William found them when he came back from Australia. So if we take our listeners to um, to the events that are discussed in your book, so the Tollgate Murders. So if you take us to the summer of 1856 and yeah. introduce us to what happened. Yeah, this is still strange. William arrived back in England in the May of 1856. It had 10 years transportation, then he had three years in Australia, um, where he'd actually struck gold in the gold fields, which we believe actually managed that's why he managed to pay for his traffic his um travel back to England thought it was really expensive he ended up in Leicester at his father's and brother's shoemaker shop um he traveled up to see his sister in Nottingham he came back down he had a argument with his brother because he ended up having an affair with his sister-in-law he ran away with his sister-in-law then came back um and then he appeared in Sculford um for the first time And he was seen in the village talking to the villagers about his um, travels. He then left and came back and then vanished again to Sculford. So he turned up for Sculford for a second time and he was seen around the village. Um, He was asking questions about who was living in certain houses. He was asking questions about weapons that were left in the pubs overnight and whether how how it would shoot somebody. And he then left Sculford, much to the happiness of the villagers, because obviously they remembered the notorious Brown family. And he headed into Melton, where he got chatting to an old man and his wife about who lived there and did they live alone? And then he started asking questions about the toll gatekeeper. Did he live alone? Did anyone look after him? And he actually was seen talking to the toll gatekeeper just a few days before the actual murder. Um, chatting away everything well as far as I, I can read everything seemed okay he was asking if he was lived on his own and if he had a wife and who came stay with him and these were questions he was constantly asking people um, he then went to visit one of his friends who he knew from school who he ended up doing a bit of work for in a field and getting a bit of money because he said he was on his way to London so he got some money from William Moore worked on his field for a bit now William Moore's field was almost opposite the toll gate, probably about 400 yards from the actual toll gate itself, up sort of like a spinny. And he also had a hovel in his field. Now, the hovel is like an old shed where bits and pieces are kept. So William was seen quite a bit around that area. Now, the night before the murder, William had done a bit more work for William Moore and decided to have a, a nap or a sleep inside the hovel. And he was seen in the hovel at about half past seven on the night before the murder. 
William then said that he just made his way to Nottingham to his sister's house. But during that time, this awful murder took place at the Tollgate, which was opposite the fields. Now, this murder was um, Edward Woodcock, who was the Tollgate keeper. He was 70. Staying with him was his young grandson. His grandson was just shy of his ninth birth, shy of his 10th birthday. And he used to say he would stay with his granddad overnight, probably just to help, you know, with the loneliness. The night of the actual murder, James Woodcock, the little grandson, didn't want to stay there. He said he's been late for work or late for school on previous occasions and could his sister stop, but his parents said no. So he stayed with his granddad. The first shot was heard at about quarter past two in the morning by Henry Baker, who was mushroom picking. The shot sounded like it came from the toll gate, but he assumed it was poachers. So he carried on with his mushroom picking and went home. At about half past four that morning of Thursday, the 19th of June, a baker from Asfordby, another village to the side of Melton, was on his way to Grantham. Now, to get to Grantham, you had to go down the Thorpe Road, cross the toll gate and through Thorpe Arnold, and that road took you all the way to Grantham. So this was his normal route. So he got to the toll gate, shouted the normal gate, gate twice, you know, wanting the gatekeeper to come out and nothing happened. So he got off his cart, opened the door, and there he saw Edward Woodcock laying in the doorway, congealed in his own blood. And obviously, doing what everyone else did, he ran to find the parish constable. Parish constable comes down, and then they find um, the grandson who had also been murdered. The grandson had had his throat slit to an extent where it was almost severed from his head. He had been stabbed in the abdomen, stabbed in his liver, completely sliced through, cuts and bruises all over his body. I think the worst bit was actually his, his throat, so it was almost severed. Edward Woodcock, although he had been shot, the shot wasn't fatal, he too had been absolutely mutilated. His head was almost decapitated from his body. He was covered in scratches um, as he tried to put up a fight. Um, his thumbs almost severed from his finger. And that was it. There was no sign of robbery that the money was still at the toll gate. So why this happened, don't know. Nobody knows. And by this time, William had found his way to where well, he'd worked. He'd, he'd left the hovel and he'd worked his way through all the villages in northeast Leicestershire to find his way to Nottingham to his sister's house. To me, it doesn't add up because if the first shot was heard at, half, at quarter past two in the morning, you've got to give William a chance to shoot the, uh, the shoot the toll gatekeeper. He's then got to mutilate the young child. He's then got to mutilate the old man. So you give him a minimum of half an hour to do all this gross, grotesque stuff. And according to the police, with the murderer ran across the fields back up to the hovel across the fields at the back of Sculford changed his clothes shredded his clothes washed his clothes put on new clothes and then absconded all the way through Sculford to these other little villages now William was seen at half past five in the morning of the murder in a village called Stathen now to get to Stathen from where the toll gate takes about three and a half hours there is no way William would have got to Stathen at half past five in the morning if he'd done all that. But that's the, that's the way I've looked at it. So then he so he made his way to Nottingham. From someone who sits and listens to a lot of crime podcasts, true crime podcasts, to me it sounds really personal. 
especially the mutilation and things like that. And it just, as you said, it just doesn't, add, it just makes no sense. Sorry, I've just, I've got a weird question to add to this because it, are, were there any other suspects that could have possibly done this? Well, no other suspects because as soon as it had been reported, everyone was like, oh my God, this ex-convict's been turning up. Oh, it's William Brown, it's Peppermint Billy. And suddenly the police decided it was William. But what they didn't investigate was about two days before the murders, William was seen at a pub called the Sugarloaf, which is in another village. There's loads of villages around Melton called Abkettleby. He was seen with an Irish man and an Irish woman and they'd been arguing. But these two weren't searched for. It was a case of, oh, okay, fine. But they didn't even try and look into who this Irish man and this Irish woman were. William... After leaving Nottingham, William went to Weatherby in North Yorkshire or West Yorkshire, but went through Bradford, Leeds and Otley. When he was in Otley, he was was with another man. They actually lodged together in a lodging house in Otley, but this man was never sought. No one never went to be found. And there was also reports of before the murder, William was seen in Sculford with an unknown character. None of these other people were ever sought, were ever asked questions. Nobody know who, know, knows who they were. It was just basically like, look, you've got your blinkers on. Williams, an ex-convict, is from a notorious family. He's been asking questions about the toll gatekeeper. He's our prime suspect. And that was it. And if you can talk us through um, William's final days. So as he said, he was um, immediately their chief suspect. As you said, they, it doesn't sound like they investigated other people. Um, and um, yeah, so what, what were his kind of final days like? Well, basically, he found his way to Weatherby in, I think Weatherby's West Yorkshire, but near North Yorkshire. Found his way to Weatherby. He took lodgings. Everything seemed fine. You know, when I've read the reports, there was nothing, nothing strange about it. You know, he, he went and lodged with this family. He then walked around Weatherby and said he was looking for looking for work. He was actually found in Weatherby because the the publican, he went into a pub and the publican was reading a report on the murder. William obviously looked a bit strange because he had this defect in his eye. And the pub landlord assumed that it was William. Basically, it was. And he got arrested. He got taken to Weatherby Town Hall. He was then transferred to Leicester. The actual chief constable of Leicester, Frederick Goodyear, came up to Weatherby to arrest him, took him back down to Leicester, where he went to the county jail. And it, from the reports, he, he seemed OK. You know, he, he said he didn't do it. He never, ever admitted to the murder. I don't know. It just seemed like he, he was covering up for somebody but I'm not really too sure who. No, his final days before he was arrested just seemed quite normal for a bloke of that time period, you know, just travelling around the country. And that's another thing I don't understand with William. When you're classed as an imbecile and weak-minded and deceitful, how this person with a weak mind managed to get from Melton Mowbray all the way to Weatherby on his own. You know, he, he obviously had something about him which I just think is so so strange but anyway yeah so he he was he came back to Leicester he was then transferred to Melton where he went to the magistrates court and that's where he was actually um not convicted but he was actually arrested for the murder of Edward Woodcock and James Woodcock and then sent to trial at the Leicester Castle Court 
that's his little that's what happened to him afterwards and um is it right that he was the last person um to be executed in leicester no he was the last person publicly um, publicly. Hanged, publicly hanged in leicester yeah in front of about twenty five thousand people so i was trying to work out how many people get into a football ground to try and get people to imagine the amount of people that are there and yeah he was executed there last say last person publicly hanged in leicester and the, the worst bit was there was a pub opposite called the Turk's Head. Now, this was known for people when they went to watch public executions, they'd go to this Turk's Head, had have a drink and watch the, watch the execution. In the top window in prime position was his dad. His wow. dad was there, waved at William with a white handkerchief to watch his son die. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can hardly imagine how harrowing that I know. must have been. Well, I don't think it was for his dad. I think his dad enjoyed it. Oh, <laughs> you know, he he had the prime position. He was given a free seat. And then after the execution, he went down the pubs in Leicester to chat about his son and all his sort of um, crime background. But to be honest with you, I don't really think it actually bothered his dad that much, to be truthful. Yeah, it sounds like just instead to... he was just trading, you know, trading off his son's stories to, you know, to talk about with other people in the area. Yeah, yeah I believe so. It, it just didn't seem to bother them. And, it, and his dad did say in the pub that if William had learned to keep his mouth shut, he wouldn't have hanged, just like I haven't hanged. Wow. So I don't really know whether it was his dad that killed the toll gatekeepers, but I don't think it was, or what else his dad had been up to. don't know. Very strange. Just just to give context to our American listeners, uh, the Michigan Stadium holds 107,000 people, so it would have been about a quarter of that stadium that would have ended up watching this execution. Wow. That it is a hell of a lot of people, and of course, it, it's very hard to do. I think what you'd have to do is to, if you Google Welford Road Prison Leicester, and you can see where it is, and then look at that area and and try and imagine twenty five thousand people going there to w- witness um, William's execution. It is a hell of a lot, and you've got to think these people travelled from all over the county, and we didn't have cars, we didn't have motorbikes. It would have been the tra- the trains, which obviously aren't like the trains we have now, and walking. I mean, people set off at night from Melton, you know, to walk the 25 miles into Leicester, which is just what they did then. So, you, you know, you've got hordes of people coming in to witness this execution. And there was a report, I found it in um, one of the, the newspapers, it was in, I think, for about 19, I think it was 1960, of this woman um, from Melton, in her obituary, it actually said, I saw Peppermint Billy hang and her dad had took her from Melton at five years old to go and watch the execution. And she said that she remembers it. So that's basically just what they did. And even Thomas Cook, you know, Thomas Cook, the travel chap, he actually used to run excursions to executions. So it literally was a great big day out. And that's where the name Gala Day comes from, the Gallows Day. So if you have a gala day, you're going to watch someone hanged the gallows. So yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I always think to myself, would I, if I'd lived back there, would I have gone to watch an execution? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. But then I'd, I've not got Facebook. I've not got the internet. I've had to do something, I suppose. And that's just what they did. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot of people. A lot of people. I think that's a perfect place for us to to wrap up our, our chat about um, William Brown. So thank you so much, Joe, for joining us. And your book is available now for people to buy. Yes, it is indeed. Yeah.
remind us the name of your book. It is Peppermint Billy, William Brown and the Tollgate Murders of 1856. And if you go on www.peppermintbilly.com, it takes you straight to my publisher's online bookshop. Perfect. Thank you so much, Joe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.